Most bankers aren't ready to help you until after their third cup of coffee. But with Central National Bank's after-hours service, you don't have to wait for the bank lobby to open to get help. You can contact us from 6 to 8.30 in the morning or from 5 to 10 in the evening, and we'll connect you to a real, live, local person who can answer questions and fix problems seven days a week. Bank different. Bank central. Central National Bank. Member FDIC. Cross the Brazos and Waco. Fight hard and I'll make it by dawn. Cross the Brazos and Waco. Welcome to the Waco History Podcast. I'm Randy Lane, great-grandson of Waco architect Roy E. Lane. Over a hundred years ago, he designed the Alico Building, Hippodrome, and other well-known landmarks. My co-host, Dr. Stephen Sloan of Baylor's Oral History Institute, is helping me learn Waco's known and unknown stories. On today's show, Waco during World War I, told by the people who lived through it. The war brought to camp, Camp MacArthur. That was the thing that really changed the face and the spirit of Waco, I think. Stephen brings his co-worker, Stephen Seeloff, senior editor and collection manager for Baylor's Institute for Oral History, to guide us through how the war changed Waco. They were here by the thousands, and their families came to Texas. Everybody was well enough to do. And now, come with us on a journey into Waco's past. Cross the Brazos and Waco, ride hard and I'll make it by dawn. Cross the Brazos and Waco, I'm safe when I reach San Antonio. All right, Stephen, welcome back to the podcast, and you've brought another Stephen. Yeah, just just to uh, add to the dynamic here, uh, we've, we've brought in another Stephen. Stephen, you want to introduce yourself? Yes, so uh, my name is Stephen Seeloff, and I am the Senior Editor and Collection Manager for the Institute for Oral History. So Randy, I brought Stephen here. Uh, November 11th will mark the centennial of the Armistice of World War One. Okay. And so Stephen has done a lot of research into the impact of World War I on Waco, and Wacoans that actually served and were impacted by the U.S. participation in World War I. Now, I'll talk a little bit of how I came to this research project. Okay. So I was actually in grad school at the time and taking a course in digitization of primary source materials. And our professor, who's uh, Eric Ames in the marketing department for Baylor Libraries now, he had the foresight as you folks in marketing probably know, to see that the 100th commemoration of World War I was approaching, that there will be several years of material and several years of exhibits. And so he chose World War I-related materials for us to, to digitize and work our way through. And so it was some diaries, some historic photographs. And the jewel of the collection was a sewer map of Camp MacArthur, <laughs> which helped me build my own map of Camp MacArthur. But it got me to thinking about what stories were in the oral history archive. And I was working there as a graduate assistant at that time. So that's where the research began. And as we've moved through that research, we've digitized our own materials. So many of these stories, as you can imagine, are some of our earliest interviews. So our interviews date back to the 70s. So those who were actually alive or old enough to remember what Waco was like during World War I uh, were interviewed primarily during that time. Many of these individuals that we'll highlight today 
are some of the jewels of our collection as far as having memories that date back that far. And many of them gave long series of interviews to the Institute, uh, 5, 10, 15 interviews worth of memories. So we, we sought to digitize these materials. Most of these were on open reel tape. So the Riley Digitization Center at Baylor University helped us digitize these materials. And then we were able to highlight these materials online. And I was actually able to play the audio which is something I really enjoy is being able to exhibit the audio so it's in their own words uh, what history was like in Waco. So I, I just try to stay out of the way as much as I can and let them <laughs> tell their own stories and pro provide the little connective tissue to, to tell to kind of shape the story. And we'll leave that to them today as well, but I really want you to be our tour guide as yes. we kind of go through World War I. Uh, so basically, let's set the stage for people on a general landscape. So what was going on that led us into World War I? Okay, we'll do a, a very brief pass through, especially the first three years okay. of World War I, which first, more commonly known as the Great War. In June of 1914, there's an assassination of an archduke from Austria by a Serbian nationalist. And that basically was the first domino in a very long path of dominoes that triggered any number of alliances and former agreements as to if something happens to you and your country, we will come to your aid. So in a very quick succession of events, uh, primarily in July of 1914, though, July crisis is what it's known as. You had the majority of mainland Europe picking sides and basically shaping up for war. We can't really spend enough time on all the all the uh, major players, but basically it was the German, Austrian, and Ottoman empires on one side and the Russian, French, and British empire slash nations on the other to begin. The conflict. And then eventually, two and a half years later, the United States starts to creep ever closer to joining the conflict. There were many isolationists in the United States uh, during that two and a half year period of time that were basically saying this is Europe's problem. This is not our problem. Mm -hmm. But there were some in the government and the government itself that felt like they, they felt like they needed to play at least some role. So for example, we were supplying a good amount of aid to the British Empire, for example, under the guise of just supply ships or sometimes almost under the guise of tourist ships. But of course, the, the German Navy in particular took notice of this. And so in January of 1917, the German Empire basically told the United States that they would begin hostilities towards these advances. We know what you're up to. And so uh, U-boat attacks began on some of these freighters. Around the same time, there's another event that takes place, commonly referred to as the Zimmermann Telegram. So the Zimmermann Telegram was a communique from Germany to Mexico. And the telegram basically was imploring Mexico to try and ramp up their own efforts at hostilities towards the United States. And in exchange, Germany will support you in that manner. Mm. Basically, as a German ruse to occupy the United States on their southern border so that they would not get involved in the European conflict. This telegram was intercepted and made public to the 
the people of the United States, particularly made public by those who wanted the United States <laughs> to enter the Great War at that time as evidence of this is who our enemy is. The payoff for Mexico joining the war would be they would receive back territories that they'd lost to the United States, including where we're sitting right now New Mexico, Arizona, California. It would have been a different world then, wouldn't it? <laughs> yes, that is true. I don't know if we'd add a flag or reuse one of our six flags. We have but, enough. Yes. So, and then we have five separate U.S. merchant vessels that are sunk in March of 1917. And at that point, well, many folks were at a fever pitch. And so in April, April 6th, 1917, the U.S. officially declared war on Germany and thereby the dominoes that would follow afterwards about who our allies would become and who our enemies would be. Excellent. So we're in the war. How does this all come to Waco and what does Waco kind of look like before all this starts? Waco is actually a pretty thriving town at the start of the First World War. So for example, in the official 1910 census, Waco's population is a little over 26,000 might not seem like much now, but that was actually the sixth largest city in Texas at that point. And uh, the largest city actually at that point was San Antonio. So we're up there and Waco has some cachet to it, I would say, as far as what it highlights. So according to the 1916 Waco City Directory, this is kind of in the front of the directory as they're trying to puff up Waco, mm -hmm. uh, they highlight certain things. So they highlight the fact that we have 10 different theaters in town, in a <laughs> town of 26,000. Can you imagine 10 theaters? That's pretty good. Today, yes. Was that true? That was true. Okay. Yes. And in fact, the, uh, so the Hippodrome that just expanded, they expanded three additional screens and they named those three screens after three of these historic theaters okay. that were in town. The other ones just didn't make the cut. Right. We'll see if, I mean, there's more of the block, you know, so maybe maybe we'll expand. Future expansion. That's right. <laughs> 10 parks, 10 city parks, 17 public schools, and one of the most amazing parts was eight colleges and universities. And so, so TCU was here. Uh, we had a number of trade universities and colleges at that time. So higher education was big in Waco. And of course, we had Baylor University. The other things they like to brag on were our lighting system. Our lighting system was pretty state of the art. We also had the Cotton Palace, which is something that I know has come up before. And the Cotton Palace will probably have to do its own podcast. Yeah, we're gonna on. we're gonna do an episode on yes. the Cotton Palace. So let's just say just uh, table that for all I'll say about the Cotton Palace right now is a hundred years ago we had our own version of Magnolia, and it was the Cotton Palace. <laughs> And even though it burned down twice, uh, we still have remnants and we still celebrate the fact that uh, the Cotton Palace and Cotton was king in, in Waco here. So that's kind of Waco before the war. Waco had benefited from its location on the Brazos River. The suspension bridge was big in the cattle trade in the early decades and then the cotton trade with the addition of the railroad circuits coming through Waco. So Waco was doing pretty well. Waco also had some entertainments that were surprisingly legal at the time. We'll uh, talk again on another episode about the reservation. The reservation was the red light district in Waco at this time. And they probably didn't advertise that as much. Well, <laughs> not, I'm sure the city leaders didn't, but everyone knew it was there it's, and it it's was not legal. the front of the city directory. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yes. it, it's a bustling area. Of town. Yes. But it's, it's a, a rumor yeah. that people maybe have you heard have far and wide. Yes. So the, but the reason I mentioned the reservation is 
as we enter war and as the U.S. government is deciding where mobilization camps are going to be built, where training camps are going to be built, where flying fields are going to be built, there's a number of considerations, geographic considerations, but there are also considerations for those who are going to serve and then thereby be privy to various entertainments. Hmm. Um, so there's two things happening in Waco at this time. One is that Waco basically was forced to shut down the reservation in an agreement with the U.S. Army. So there's no legal prostitution while there are twenty to 30,000 soldiers right outside your city limits. So that happened. I could see why. Yes. And then, in addition, the state's going through a bit of a, a tumult when it comes to prohibition of alcohol. Waco actually becomes dry at the end of 1917, and it's a little more than a year before national prohibition takes effect. So within the span of a year or so... They've ruined all the vices for you, you the lost, incoming you soldiers. Lost your, you your lost, weekend change. Yes, <laughs> you lost your booze and, and other things. So... So that was important. Local city leaders, business leaders uh, being part of these talks to bring camps, especially Richfield, the flying field here. Those were important considerations. And a railroad spur was an important consideration as well. And so we'll talk a little bit more about that when we get into talking about the camps in particular. Excellent. So kind of the most well-known, at least for someone like me who's a novice to Waco history, is Camp MacArthur. How did that get placed here, and how did they decide where that was going to go? Okay. The primary reason Camp MacArthur came to Waco was the fact that the United States Army was not much of an army when we decided to declare war. Uh, a lot of people think about World War II and all the men going out to fight and all the women you know, getting to the factories and doing the jobs for the men while they're gone and the great mobilization that happened. There was an even greater mobilization during World War I as it related to actually building up the military, hmm. able-bodied troops. So that, that meant a, an, an explosion in having to build the infrastructure from the ground up, and that included these training and deployment camps. And just because of the sheer numbers and because of, I would say it's primarily based on the railroad system as well and the size of the cities. So you have a couple of other large camps in Texas at this time. Camp Bowie is in Fort Worth. Camp Travis is in San Antonio. So it's just they, they needed a certain number of these to, to meet their quota. The size of the city won out, logistics won out, and also basically it was a gift from the city. Where Camp MacArthur was built was basically farmland mm -hmm. outside the city limits proper. It's in the northwestern part of what we would call Waco now, and so it was the gift of this land to the government. And then after the war was over, the camp disappeared as quickly as it came, and the, and the land was returned. And then, of course, the city began to expand. Yeah. So why would the city want to give the government all that land? It's 1,300 acres, so it's a big plot of land. That's right. And that was the campsite. There's over 10,000 acres total when you considered ranges. And probably the easiest way to answer that question would be to say that at its peak, there were over 30,000 soldiers at Camp MacArthur. So I mentioned earlier there were just over 26,000 individuals living in Waco. So just doubling your population, basically. So you're doubling your population and thereby doubling your consumer base if you're a business mm -hmm. in Waco. And if you have any interest at all at promoting Waco, that's you're, you're doubling <laughs> the number of eyes, pairs of eyes and ears, you know, around. And so the camp 
uh, was built. So I mentioned in April of 20 of 1917. In April of 1917, we declared war on Germany. In July of 1917, they began building Camp MacArthur on the northwest border of Waco. And in September, troops started arriving. So it was very quick. So the the interesting thing, one of the most interesting things about Camp MacArthur, however, is that it was not for local troops. Most of the local men who either enlisted or were later drafted into service. So they went north to Fort Worth to Camp Bowie, and they served in the 36th Infantry Division. So um, why, is, why is that? I mean, it seems kind of funny to send the people away, and, and what are these other people doing here, and for what reason, and where they right. come from? And again, we'll get, to lo- we'll get into logistics. Our boys in Texas were mainly shipped to either Fort Worth or San Antonio, whereas the bulk of the, the new recruits from the states of Wisconsin and Michigan were sent to Camp MacArthur. Okay. One of these three camps basically served the majority of those two states of enlistees or draftees. It's a huge influx for uh, for the population, and it's a bit of a culture shock, mm-hmm. as you can imagine. You had some interesting dynamics with, you can imagine, you have twenty five to 30,000 eligible bachelors probably moving just outside the city limits if you're you know, one of the young ladies in Waco, (laughs) which we'll hear from a number of these individuals that we'll hear from in our collection about World War I were at the time, either high school age or just outside of high school. So this is a, this is a big thing for their, their town and their way of life. Camp MacArthur, I'll mention, is named after Arthur MacArthur, who is... <laughs> His parents didn't like him very much. <laughs> right. Who was a, a veteran primarily of the conflict in the Philippines. And the father of Douglas MacArthur. Yeah, the father of Douglas okay. MacArthur. So a long, long lineage of MacArthur's. So Camp MacArthur featured... It was mainly... It was primarily for basic training. There's an officer's training school as well. Once these individuals were trained enough to be shipped, usually they traveled to... New Jersey uh, to be shipped over overseas to France. So how long was their training there typically? Training was usually, so usually training was about four to six months. That's and, pretty good. Mine was two months. And it's <laughs> and it's similar to, to the experience that the local soldiers had that were shipped to Camp Bowie. So Camp Bowie soldiers. So I'd say not only was there a lot of people coming into Waco, but these people were kind of rotating through because they weren't here that long before they were another group was coming in, right? Right. Once the the unit shipped out, it became a bit of a demobilization. So it wasn't just preparing the next unit. It was also, you also had some returning soldiers at that point. Okay. One thing I'll, I'll make a mention of right now, another difference between the Great War and World War II is that the U.S. involvement was, by comparison, quite short. By the time trained U.S. soldiers began arriving for the European theater, uh, that was early 1918, usually. The war was over. The armistice was agreed upon in November of 1918. Most of the action that the United States soldiers saw was in that year. And it was a pretty quick turnaround. And for many that especially had to wait until a little later in 1918 before they actually took that ocean voyage to France and then worked their way up to the front, there were a lot of these new recruits that either barely got into combat 
situations or didn't even get into it at all when the armistice so the, so the party's over before a lot of these guys even get to it <laughs> but their presence especially in the mid 1918 when the germans actually begin to make a bit of a push into france their presence basically bolstering the allied numbers helped to push back and actually begin to to make some some progress towards the french german border and that's when a number of factors went into Germany deciding to agree to the armistice at that time. I believe they saw the writing on the wall as far as, as the progress that was being made and that th- this would just continue. These waves of American soldiers would just continue. To, they didn't want any of that. Uh, I so, think maybe you said this earlier, but how, so how long was Camp MacArthur there? Okay, so it's built in the summer of 1917, and after war is over at, toward the end of 1918, early 1919, uh, the decision is made to basically tear the camp down for parts, for raw materials, and most of those are shipped to the U.S.-Mexico border to be used in fortifications along the border. That's crazy. I didn't, I guess I didn't think about how short of a time that really was. Right. So the official close date of Camp MacArthur is in March of 1919. So it's less than two years. So again, it's, you kind of have to set your mind toward a different paradigm. Mm-hmm. Most of us are familiar with the length of the of World War II and um, how, again, we had the buildup. You weren't quite sure what it was going to look like, but then kind of the long slog, whether it be the European theater or the Pacific theater. Uh, whereas this, you know, for most Americans, it was a, it was a two-year wartime environment. And I think it's kind of interesting how for a lot of Waco history, it's kind of like a, a slow progression towards something. And this seems like, bam, real fast, doubling the population, and then, oh, now they're gone again. Right. <laughs> it's got to really kind of change how a city's, you know, feels about itself and, and what they think about the future, right? Absolutely. And, of course, I don't think anyone really knew what yeah. the future would hold when we got into the conflict. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think people had an impression based on, again, there had been two and a half years of conflict in Europe, in France, primarily. And we got a good sense of what 20th century military conflict looked like Mm -hmm. and i'm sure what was on a lot of americans minds at this time was they they heard stories or they saw what trench warfare was like and they were concerned it would just be another series of years and our boys would be in those trenches and you know god help them if they were to go over the top or you know things like that so and then of course you had the the oddities of of horses and tanks sharing the battlefield and and the introduction of chemical warfare as we'll see in some of our clips, everyone was behind this war locally. Once war was declared, there's there's a great fervor of patriotism, but it was by no means did they think that this was going to be over. You know, in the matter of, I, I think most people probably didn't realize that it would be over by a year and a half into the conflict. Mm-hmm. So we've been talking about Camp MacArthur, and mm-hmm. of course, Richfield yes. uh, was also is also a big part of the story. And as you said. Uh, Randy Camp MacArthur's a little more familiar to folks than Rich Field, but Rich Field is a really interesting story because we're talking about the growth pains of aviation. I mean, this is we're, we're we're 15 years out from the Wright brothers, and they're experimenting with aerial warfare. And so, Stephen, I'd love for you to talk a little bit and introduce us to Rich Field as like you've introduced us to Camp MacArthur. 
combat, aviation combat. It had a few introductory moments. One of those was in the Philippines, but World War I was its coming out party. Not only did the U.S. military need to rapidly build up its ranks as far as its army, it had to figure out how it was going to embrace this new technology. So uh, just as they were looking for mobilization sites and training sites, they were looking for flying field locations. And so Richfield was a situation where especially the, the businessmen of Waco put more effort into this. There's figures I've seen as, as far as as much as $5 million raised locally or committed locally to in order to bring this field to Waco. And one of the, the reasons for that amount is all Army planes at this time were built in the Northeast and basically constructed in parts and then loaded in a box and then shipped to wherever they're going to be used to be constructed at that location and used at that location. So in order to have a flying field, uh, you needed to have a railroad spur that would accommodate this commerce. So the spur was built at this time uh, in order to accommodate the shipment of planes from the Northeast. And the field itself, they again, it's geography, it's logistics. So they needed a flat parcel of land, typically, <laughs> uh, in order to, to practice their takeoffs and landings, primarily. And so it didn't, it didn't hurt also that we already had the camp here. Construction began in Richfield a month after Camp MacArthur, so that's in August of 1917. And then it's completed in three months. So Richfield, it basically trained from 1917 to 1919. So it kind of went into 1919 a bit before it changed hands off of the government's dime. Uh, about 400 pilots total were trained at Richfield in Waco. And one thing in particular to say about Richfield was there was not a single casualty during training, hmm. uh, which was pretty rare. It's a, pre it's a pretty big accomplishment for any of the training fields at this time. So the field itself cost about $2 million to construct. So Richfield, to locate Richfield, the easiest way to locate it in modern-day Waco is the heart of Texas Fairgrounds. That is basically Richfield. You know, that's really interesting. It makes a lot of sense. It's a big, flat, open area. So that the fairgrounds is basically where it was. It's basically where it was. Wow. It's also the site of Waco High School, mm -hmm. as we know it now. But that Lions Park as well. It's kind of on the border of it. Yes. Yeah, that, that segment there. Okay. So, so Wake, see, I learned something every day. So Waco High, those who have been here for a while in Waco know that it used to be called Richfield High School. Ah. And so that's direct direct connection to that name. The actual Lions Club, that part of the Lions Club building, like if you look at the front of the Lions Club as it exists today, and you kind of see the, the general stonework at the front of the building, the front half of the building, that's actually extant stonework from the original Richfield. Wow. So we, we talked about how quickly Camp MacArthur was basically deconstructed and scrap was sent out. There were remnants of the camp, of course, after that fact, but very few. Richfield uh, existed after World War I. It was turned over to the city and was used as a training facility. Uh, you could also, for a dollar, for a while there, for a dollar, you could go up in the biplane and <laughs> take a little tour. of What like, a deal. Yeah, it was just pretty good. Yeah, so it becomes the first municipal airport. Right. right. There's commercial service out of there at one point. 
So is that why there was such an investment from the business community to get it here in the first place? You could see that. So this is new technology. Mm -hmm. It certainly benefited the city after the fact. And it was actually used when World War II began. It was used for a couple of years, basically, for training until our current Waco Regional Airport was built for more modern you know, services. Basically, after World War II, that's when Richfield kind of decommissions. So that's kind of why there was that large of a swath of land right there in kind of the middle of Waco right. where there's homes on all sides now. Right. And that's why they probably turned it into the fairgrounds. And in the same way, you had a certain amount of infrastructure built for Camp MacArthur. So most people will recognize MacArthur Drive in mm -hmm. Waco. MacArthur Drive was basically the main artery going north, northwest into the camp. It basically led, its termination was the officer's quarters and the commander's tent. So that, that benefited the city as well. Even after they tore most of the the actual structures down, you still had some. We mentioned before the, the sewer map that we were able to digitize. So you had <laughs> you had some infrastructure when it came to that as well. And you got this really cool map you brought with you, and I, I think we'll, we should put it in the show notes so people can kind of look at it and see, because now that I'm looking at it, I didn't look at it at first and go, oh yeah, that's where the fairgrounds are, but it totally makes sense now. And it's, I really wonder how many Wacoans know that. Is it well known, you think? Uh, I don't think so. I think that the, as you said, now that you know it, it makes sense mm -hmm. because of how open that land is mm -hmm. there. It's very flat as well. I've mm -hmm. always thought that like, man, there's just a lot of space here. And also even from like a historical marker standpoint, we have a historical marker for Camp MacArthur. It's in the 19th Street HEB parking lot. <laughs> I'm so, going to go look for that. Yes. Uh, but we do not have one for Richfield. Mm -hmm. oh. um, so that's on the on the to-do list, that's I believe, right. for, for Waco. So I see you have a sound clip here you want to play. Is yes. This, uh, from someone working at Richfield? Yes. So young gentleman named Bob Pogue. Most people would know him by... His official title, which is Congressman Robert Pogue. Yes. Okay. Long-time local congressman, U.S. congressman uh, from the Waco area here. For example, the Pogue uh, Legislative Library on Baylor University's campus is named after him. So he was one of these strapping young teenagers and junior or senior in high school when war was declared and when things started happening in Waco. So he's going to talk in this this oral memoir. He's going to talk about what he actually did, how he was involved in the construction of these camps. What do you recall of the changes that the war brought in the town of Waco? Well, of course, the war brought the camp, Camp MacArthur. That was the thing that really changed the face and the spirit of Waco, I think. They built that camp, uh, built it very rapidly. I was working with the engineers in those days. I got a job at $2 a day and thought that I was getting extremely rich. You uh, were working doing what? Well, I drove the first stake that was ever driven out from Richfield, which is now the area where Richfield High School and that part of town, but the airfield was there. I was driving stakes, carrying a chain, surveyor's chain or stadia rods. With the engineers, uh, we laid off. I was not there when we laid off the first part of the camp. I was in school and the coming summer I was working with the engineers uh, at two dollars a day and surveying all around. They did all kind of surveying and all kind of work with level. Uh, and I got to inspecting 
sewer pipe. I handled 200 carloads of sewer pipe out there. I don't know why they gave me the job, but the engineers put me to it. Uh, in those days, you'd unload that pipe off of the cars, and I stood there with a stick, and it hit each joint of pipe as it came off, and you could tell by the sound whether there was a crack in it or not. And that's what I was doing, and that took a whole lot of my time. When I wasn't actually out with a surveying party, that's what I was doing, was testing that sewer pipe. That lasted pretty well all summer. So he was basically building or helping start build Richfield. Right. And if you weren't actively taking part in the local construction, you could certainly make your way out there and see what was going on. And not only the camp itself, which was rather large, and as we said, within a couple months was was fully constructed, but especially once the flying field and those planes started showing up, it was quite a spectacle. Yeah, I've read it was 3,400 short-time jobs. Of, so there's a just at Ridgefield and its construction, so a lot of work going on. Uh, I love that visual, that idea of him sitting there banging pipe with a stick to try and see if it's got the right sound. Right, <laughs> and you, you see that, and it's, you know, as a historian, it's interesting to see these connections. So you hear him talking about inspecting sewer pipe and then you find a, a sewer map <laughs> of the camp in another collection and, and so you, you can see exactly what what he was working on basically so that was uh, congressman pogue he tells another interesting story about how they tested in order to be a pilot they had the uh, colorblindness test and how they did that for the first world war and how they did that is they had a suitcase full of different colors of yarn Okay. I think there was over a hundred different colors of yarn, and they basically would point to various colors or ask them to pick out, and based on how they they did on that test, that would tell them if they were. Now I know you make fun of me, Stephen, for ins for inserting myself into all these stories, but I am very colorblind. <laughs> Are you really? Yeah. But you're a photographer. It's actually funny, and I'll. This is kind of an aside. Maybe I'll leave out. But um, when I'm doing my editing, I actually rely on the RGB parade and vector scopes to tell me how saturated each color is so I know that I'm not off. So when I'm color correcting, I'm mostly using scopes to kind of see exactly how it looks. That's really interesting. <laughs> well, I was going to bring it up because one of the things they're doing at Ridgefield is interesting is they're training them in aerial photography because a lot of these planes are observation planes and they're, they're figuring out, they're learning ways to use photography to gather intel. So, interesting. Yeah. So all these people start showing up in Waco. You've doubled the population. What does sure. Waco look like right then? Okay. This is where we're going to start letting those who actually experience the story tell the story. So we're going to start getting into this now with some of the, the local residents. The first one we're going to start with is a young lady who was recently married at the time, living in San Antonio at the time the U.S. entered World War One, and her husband enlisted and was sent off to fight in World War I. So when that happened, she decided to move back home to Waco. So her home was Waco. She was probably about 20 years old at this time. Her name is Adrienne Wilkes Olenbush, and her mother was one of the, I would say, leading socialites in Waco at this time. So she's she's gonna tell us a number of stories here, but the first one she's gonna, first thing she's gonna talk about is Obviously, with 30,000 new potential customers, business was just booming in Waco. Mm -hmm. So we're going to talk a little bit about that first. So we're going to have Mrs. Holenbush talk about just what was going on in Waco and how easy it was to sell something. 
Do you remember any changes brought to the businesses in Waco from Camp MacArthur? Oh, the business was simply terrific. They were here by the thousands and their families came to Texas. Everybody who was well enough to do came straight to Waco and people were asked for rooms and to put them up and all because the town was absolutely flooded with mothers and fathers whose sons were getting ready to go and they knew they were going pretty soon. And they literally sold out practically everything in the stores. Just You could sell anything. They sold armadillo baskets. <laughs> they sold absurd keepsakes. But I mean, they sold clothing and oh, everything on earth. It was just, it was a riot. There'd never been such a business as there was that year. That was before people knew what a mess we were in. <laughs> they were still spending money high, wide, and handsome. I love that accent. That's hilarious. It's kind of like Southern with old-timey. You don't have to check Mrs. Olinbush's ID to know where <laughs> she's from. And armadillo purses, is that what she said? Uh, armadillo baskets. Baskets. I think that you know, when you think about an armadillo and his kind of protective <laughs> stance, that would, that would be what that would look like. But she mentioned something interesting there is that it's not just the 30,000 soldiers that were here, but it was all the families. So we talked about these are Wisconsin and Michigan boys. Their families are coming down to check on them from time to time. They're coming down before they're going to be shipped off, you know, to the East Coast to, to head out to be mobilized. So you can begin to imagine, start doing the math of just... It could have been like triple the population if you think about if each person had a couple people coming, right? Right. So that's Miss Olinbush. Um, one of our other narrators is Miss Mary Comendo Sindone. Miss Sindone was a junior at Waco High School uh, during this time. Her father uh, was a cobbler in downtown Waco. Uh, so she's going to talk about what the war meant for her father's business in Waco, and then you know just about Waco as a whole as well. And my dad, his shop began to grow. By the time the war came, Camp MacArthur you know, came to Waco, and that was filled with uh, the 32nd Division with Wisconsin and Michigan soldiers. The soldiers began to come to town and have their work done in town. They'd come to my dad's shop. He had a nice big shop where you could sit around and read newspapers and he'd have magazines there where they could they wait. And he always had that place full of soldiers. In fact, he had one of them come in there wanted to work for him one day. But he would uh, he, he would uh, work late on Saturday night. He'd work day and night, not only on Saturday nights, but on weeknights to catch up. All, then pretty soon the, the government gave him a contract to to take care of the officers' boots. They all had to have so much done to their boots all the time. Of course, they, they, they uh, enlisted me and would just come and have their own shoes fixed, you know. But but he had a contract for those officers' boots. He made a lot of money during the war. And that was where, where he really, that was a bonanza for him. And that's where he got really established. And. Uh, because I was in high school at that time. That was during the war. And uh, it was a big day for a big time for Waco because it, it Waco in large, I forgot the population went up so big. And so many of the, the soldiers that came to Waco at that time married Waco girls when the war was over. And some of them were still had been here in Waco. I mean, I know it was two or three in the paper the other day, some reunion. And it was one of those Michigan soldiers that had married a Waco girl. So that was a big time for Baylor Waco. That uh, army camp was located not too far from here up on 19th Street. There's still remnants of it out there. So it's really interesting to hear her talk about the boom, but I hadn't thought about maybe how many people, because of relationships and marrying, ended up sticking around. Right, and how that affects 
you know, just the demographics of Waco mm-hmm. afterwards as well. Yeah. I'm sure the northerners would say we got a little culture, you know, <laughs> because of that. And we taught the and we would say that we taught these young boys some manners and, you know, things like that. But <laughs> so that that was a really interesting aspect of of this influx as well. Business is booming, but the government has business to do as well during this time. And that primarily takes the form of Liberty Bond drives for the war. There were four separate Liberty Bond drives in Waco while we were engaged in World War I. So Miss Olin Bush is going to talk about her role in the Bond drives, but she's also gonna talk about her mother's role and a little fringe benefit her mother got <laughs> for leading uh, the women's chapter of one of these bond drives and how successful it was. My mother, she headed the women's division of the first war bond sale in Waco when they put on the big sale of war bonds, which was one of the main works we all did. We all were given blocks or areas in which we were responsible for the monthly sale of war bonds, and we called on everybody. And mother put on, was the head of the first big one, and it was very successful, and her reward was that she was taken out to Richfield, and Edgar Glenn, who was a very dashing, popular young lieutenant, a terrific flyer, who married a Waco girl, Ethel Foster, took mother up in an airplane for the first time that a woman had ever been allowed in a government airplane, and she wore a flying suit with a parachute strapped onto her back and a helmet, I have the cutest picture of you ever saw in it. <laughs> that, she, that was at the end of the successful campaign to sell war bonds, liberty bonds, war bonds. That's interesting. Mm. Okay, let me ask you something about the war bond sale. Was it easy to sell the war bonds? Yes. Mm-hmm. Did you? Everybody put a certain amount of money in them all the time. You know, that was a real unique experience. You know, we had had the, the Spanish-American War, but that's the only thing we'd been involved in since the Civil War, and the Spanish-American War was very brief and touched us very lightly. But this was a catastrophe, and people went overboard, and nobody did anything or thought anything but the war for at least a couple of years in through there. That was everything. Everything was subordinated to that. Everything quit. So I think I understand exactly, you know, kind of how war bonds work. But if you could kind of just refresh my memory or kind of explain it for people at home, it's, it's basically a way to raise capital quickly, but then people can invest for the future, right? Right. And so it's basically an investment. It's an investment into the war effort on your part, but it's also your own investment. And so you're guaranteed a certain return over a certain number of years. You'll be able to basically cash in that bond. Yeah, this is when most Americans didn't pay a personal income tax. Okay. And so this is how they're raising revenue. Mm-hmm. Pay all these soldiers. You hear this throughout kind of the testimony in our collection. People make a pretty big distinction when they talk about this war and the local reaction to this war and how everyone bought war bonds or liberty bonds or everyone was for the war or whatnot. Especially some of these interviews that are conducted in the 70s during the Vietnam War. They make a big distinction about how, you know, it was night and day mm-hmm. between how certain members of the public, you know, saw and made their, you know, displeasure known during the, the Vietnam War versus how it almost seemed like it was ubiquitous to most people during World War One on the home front as far as everybody was all in for this war. Uh, there are some, you know, as history often uh, provides us some distinctions to that, and we'll get to that a bit later. But as you heard from Miss Olin Bush, 
it was pretty easy to sell these war bonds. Mm -hmm. If people didn't outright feel like they wanted to support it and wanted to buy these, you could chalk it up to peer pressure. You can chalk it up to greater societal pressures in some cases. But as I said, there were four entire cycles of this. And there's some some great Gildersleeve photos showing off the successes of these war bond drives. Two of my favorites are what he basically titles the largest gathering of workers in the history of Waco hmm. outside of now Carroll Science Library on Baylor's campus, one of his famous panoramic photos. Everyone lined up. They've got like numbers for sections or whatnot showing everyone who participated in this Liberty Bond Drive from the business community. Correspondingly, you have another one of his famous photos of soldiers in formation, kind of a, not an aerial, but a, you know, one Bird's of the eye. scaffolding shots where the soldiers are actually forming the Liberty Bond symbol themselves. Oh. The byline is these 11,000 U.S. soldiers, these are actual octopus, also bought Liberty Bonds as part of this drive. So again, if you are at any way on the fence about if you're supposed to be buying a Liberty Bond, everyone around you was buying Liberty Bonds. You put things in your window, uh, little signs in your window. I bought a Liberty Bond, kind of like a I voted sign, you know. And, and I tell you what, Gildersleeve is always promoting something. He is, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then the reward for the successful drive, that sounds pretty cool. Like, So was she the first woman ever flown in a government plane that we know of? Or that's what she claims anyway? That's the story. That's, that's the story. story. <laughs> well, Probably in her neck of the woods. Have yes. you seen that picture she's talking about? I wish I had that picture. There, there are these pictures that are referenced in some of these older oral histories. There's another one where they'll talk about sheet music that one of our sisters collected sheet music of the patriotic sheet music of this time. And so you just begin to wonder what happened to some of these things that are mentioned. And it also goes to like how the planes worked back then that you had to have your, your parachute strapped to you right away because you know, if it's new technology, things might happen, right? That's right. Yeah. <laughs> All right, well, let's keep on going. Yeah, let's, so let's, uh, so we're going to stick with Miss Ellen Bush a little bit because, so she was participating in these bond drives, of course. But her main role during the Great War was that she volunteered for the Red Cross. And so she's got a really great memory about her time and the Red Cross, what that was like, and what specifically the Waco chapter of the Red Cross was doing to help out the war effort. The head of the division that I worked in, which was the canteen service, was Miss Chester Story. And she recruited young women for duty, there were a few older women who were like captains and majors and whatnot, you know, sort of supervisory. And we worked, you had to work at least one day and you could work more. I worked two days a week regularly through that entire first winter. I don't remember whether I went into the second winter or not, but anyway, I worked down there all one year at the Katy Station. And we reported down there like nine o'clock in the morning and we went on the streetcar as a rule. We either walked or we went on the streetcar. And we got off of it down at 8th and Austin, and we walked over to the Katy Depot, which was on 8th and the railroad tracks. And there was a little building built there, a little gray building with great big red crosses on it that was quite functional, a little, little wooden shack, really wasn't too big either. But it was set up with equipment needed to do coffee and sandwiches. And we had great, tremendous coffee urns 
and any number of great heavy coffee pots that we carried out to the trains and trays of cups and we made ham sandwiches and we found out after a little experimenting that the best way was to grind the ham. We had meat grinders there, ham meat grinders. We ground the ham and we ground pickle and we mixed it with mustard and we made big fat husky, real good ham sandwiches. And we would meet every train that came through. One would carry a basket of sandwiches, one would carry the coffee urn, and one would carry the basket with the cups. And there would be hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of soldiers on those trains. And they would have a stop there, and they depended on us for their lunch. There were no diners, no provision in any way. I expect it was practically all along the railroad line. And I want to tell you that it was work. It was very rewarding work, and it was very exciting work, because the trains sometimes would be 10 and 15 coaches loaded with young, homesick, raw recruits, you know. Most of them on the way to San Antonio are here to train. We would take messages for them if they had a letter to be mailed. If they had written a letter and had the address, we guaranteed that we'd get an envelope and a stamp and get it off. We'd send telegrams for them. If they knew anybody in town that they were trying to get in touch to, we just served as, really and truly, I, I think it was a perfectly terrific service because I don't know what they would have done without the women. And as I said, the women were mostly young women. We wore blue uniforms with white washable collars and cuffs, which had red crosses on them, and we wore a blue I'm doing like you can see my gestures. It had a white band that fastened around your head and a blue veil that hung and covered your head. And they were really right attractive and right becoming. And most of us made ours. They had a model and we made these uniforms. We tried to be friendly and tried to be cheery and tried to help out. And I always felt like it was one of the best things I ever did. You know, it's dinner time and a ham sandwich. I could really go for a ham sandwich. <laughs> you know, it, the, the accent just cracks me up because you can see how even the accent here in town locally has shifted in that period of time. Right. Mm -hmm. um, it's so interesting, her telling that story and then researching what she's talking about. So in Roger Conger's pictorial history of Waco, you can actually find photographs of the Red Cross in action during World War One, you can find a lineup of those who served in the Red Cross, and there's Miss Olinbush <laughs> in the lineup. And then you can see their outfits as well. So she talks about how most of the ladies made their own. They weren't given this uniform, basically. Mm -hmm. And so you can see the little minute differences <laughs> in, in their uniforms as well. And some of these, you know, as, as we've had the commemorations here for World War One, you've seen exhibits and you see some of the, the Red Cross or the soldiers uh, uniforms on so you, you can actually you know these past couple of years you can actually see what she's talking about but uh so she mentions basically like taking care of the soldiers as part of the Red Cross. Now, Red Cross today, people think about like disaster relief or blood drives and stuff. So is right. that pretty much what they were doing at that time? Well, that she mentioned. She was, so she was part of the canteen service. Yeah, yeah. I'd imagine for the young ladies who have any sort of exposure to any sort of medical training. Right were more into the different types of services, especially as it related to the camp itself locally here, and then especially as we get towards the end of 1918 into 1919 and the Spanish influenza outbreak. Uh, that's mm. where their, their particular service really uh, was impactful. Kind of a side note, we're probably not going to talk about Spanish influence. That, that's another episode. That's another probably another episode, episode okay. so I'm going to save that stuff. But, um, <laughs> it's all foreshadowing for future episodes. That's right. Uh, <laughs> this will all come together, so it all makes sense eventually. <laughs> so uh, we're going to have Miss Sindone back now to talk about. So a big part of having all these soldiers outside your city limits is the interaction. So the reservation is shut down. You can't drink after a while. 
So what what was the entertainment? You know, how did the soldiers spend their time? How did they interact with the local citizenry? Uh, so Miss Sindone's going to talk a little bit about that and th and her and her sister's experience with some of these soldiers. You know, a lot of entertainments were given in Waco. They had sing songs out at the Cotton Palace, and the Army chorus out at the Army would join, and, and we'd go out to the Cotton Palace, and all of Waco would go out, and they would sing all the war songs. And the songs that we sang, we began then to pick up these war songs like Over There and A Long Way to Tipperary and all of those songs. My sister would go down to Crest, the Crest store. On every Saturday, they would put out a new sheet of music, and they had a girl playing the piano there. She would play it for you, see if you liked it. We would go down and buy that music, and my sister would put her name and address on that music. And I have a box of music now, of the war music, that my sister bought all during that war. And then we'd come home and sing them on Sunday afternoons. And one Sunday afternoon, we were singing until late Sunday night. <laughs> a friend of ours came in and said, you sure got an audience out front. Well, my dad went to see what lined up against our iron fence. We had an iron fence in front of our house. We were soldiers leaning over the fence. And my dad went out to talk to them and ask them if they wouldn't come in. They wouldn't come in. They said, we just wanted to listen to the music. And that was the kind of a thing, you know, they just wandered out into neighborhoods and when they heard that music, they just, they were all, I guess there were like 10 or 12 soldiers leaning up against the Iron Fence listening. Do you recall anything about the sale of Liberty Bonds? Oh, yes, yeah, that, there were big programs. In fact, they, they would come and get high school students to go and perform with groups that would go out and try to sell and people would give programs. They'd get uh, maybe some actor or somebody that would come and give a kind of a little show and then and then try to sell Liberty Bonds. And they would have parades, you know, to, to start it off, and then they'd go somewhere with a program. My grandfather bought a lot of Liberty Bonds, and I remember before he died, there were some Liberty Bonds that had to be taken care of. Every week there was somebody selling Liberty Bonds. That was a big thing, and that was to help the war. And they had posters, you know, with the Statue of Liberty and Uncle Sam all over town holding Liberty Bonds. It was just well advertised. So let's talk about the first part of that. You're talking about what they do, so I guess they all got to sing it. Pretty much. <laughs> and so she mentions the Crest Store, mm -hmm. which we have the Crest Lofts now, you know. As, oh, okay. Mm -hmm, as is yeah. the 21st century, you know, tradition. Of, mm -hmm. I love this. I'm just learning so much. So that's where the, the music store was. Right. Well, as a, as a general department store oh, okay. yeah. as well. So, yes. Yeah, so that was primarily her sister uh, getting involved in that. But she was talking about how you have local efforts, but then you'd have the traveling kind of the USO style mm -hmm. uh, traveling bond drive efforts. You know, you might employ a celebrity or two of the day or whatnot and go on a, a little statewide or nationwide tour to, to help sell these bonds. And then, of course, something we can't see on a podcast, but all the wonderful posters of the era that corresponded to any, anything to do with the war effort, but liberty bonds. So you'd have the Statue of Liberty, lest I perish, you know, you know, purchase liberty bond and things, things, things such as that. So that's another wonderful thing to to come across in some of these stories is to see exactly what they're talking about uh, when they have these memories of of these Liberty Bond drives. I love the visual of soldiers just wandering through the neighborhoods and then they happen upon some music and they just want to sit outside and listen to it. I mean, I can identify with that, you know, the idea of being somewhere far from home, being a soldier and you're like something nice, something pleasant, something that reminds you of home. Maybe maybe your your sister and your your mom used to sing too. And then also the idea of, you know, Today, we would download music to listen to it. And then before that, people would go to the store to buy it. But even before that, they have to buy the, the sheet music for it. 
Mm-hmm. <laughs> you can't even buy like a recording of it per se. So you have to get the sheet music. Right. And someone has to play it for and you so to see if you like it. Knowledge. Yes. <laughs> mm-hmm. It's so funny how things have changed. So, Stephen, as we were talking about the patriotic fervor with the war, I think about the, the German presence, the German immigrant presence in Texas. And so patriotic fervor can bring all sorts of things, particularly for those that may be associated or rumored to be associated with the enemy. So can you, can you talk a little bit about uh, German Americans? Absolutely. So it's almost like you flip the switch when the United States declares war. Everyone's all in, but then also most of the non-German population of the United States is suddenly a little suspicious mm. of the German population. So in Texas, we've had a couple waves of German immigrants to this time. So you actually, within the German population itself, you have some older German Americans and younger German Americans as far as their the time spent here and their experience. And even within their German communities, there's some discussion about, am I for the Kaiser or not for the Kaiser? You know, what do I think about what's actually going on in Europe? And how do I square that with my new German American identity? Mm-hmm. But for those outside of the German community, there were some individuals that were pretty quick to cast suspicion on just what these German Americans are going to do now that we're at war with Germany. So there's there's a couple local stories I want to highlight in particular. And the first has to do with Waco High School. So I mentioned before, we have some junior seniors in Waco High at this time giving some of these testimonies. So Ms. Sindone was a junior in Waco High. So she's got a great story about what happens. Like I said, flip the switch the day after we declare war on Germany. What happens at Waco High? The day we went back to school after war was declared, we had a German teacher named Beasley, had his name over the door, went upstairs, that name was down, the door was dark, and they had to put him out of school. Now that was so ridiculous, it wasn't even, that was just, every, the kids were just mad, because he was a nice teacher. Then they accused the principal of being a spy, that he had, he and a math teacher named Workington, he was a German. See, radios were just coming in. Mm-hmm. And they were fixed a radio up on top of the high school building. And they said they were sending messages to the enemy. Well, our principal, Genheimer, was a German. And he came out the next day at school. And the man was so mad, we thought he was going to have a stroke or something. Up on the platform there. And it was a rumor. It's all it was, a rumor. They finally retracted it in the newspaper and settled it. But Workington, the math teacher, never came back. So we never did know the real story there. Mr. Genheimer stayed on as principal. Mr. Beasley had to leave. What was the difference? Well, we never did know the straight of that, whether Mr. Beasley just left because he felt the heat. Oh, but I don't think he was fired. I just don't really believe that man was fired. Mm-hmm. But see, they closed the German department. You could say German anymore. They put French in. That's really interesting. So it's not just the German people, it's the German culture. Mm-hmm. And you see this all across the state and the nation as the decline of German departments, the German influence at all, and the reciprocal of that is French culture rises in popularity. Huh. So one of the things I've thought of after going through these testimonies is, you know, my high school, I, I attended Robinson High School just south of Waco here. So I couldn't take German. That wasn't one of my choices, but mm-hmm. French sure was one of my choices. And so I, I think about things like that. It's like, how old are some of these influences? The language of the ally. Yeah. That's right. 
and and then it happened again, you know, yeah. a couple decades later, and to just to reinforce it. And uh, it's interesting too, you know, modern correlation that people have some stigma against Middle Eastern people, and it's completely unfounded in most cases. Very similar to that back then. So really, you're just kind of like history does repeat itself, mm-hmm. and it's just really unfortunate for the victims and the people who get spoken ill of at the time. Right, right. Mm-hmm. the Middle Eastern individual with a computer these days yeah. is analogous to the German principal with a right dist- <laughs> with the radio trying to bring something <laughs> to the school basically I know that it's all kind of rumor and con- conjecture but the guy that was just gone in one day is it just do they think that he thought that he would be persecuted and was like I'm just out of here or that that's the interpretation that I've seen more more often is that I think he he was he was a bit of an amateur historian as well, mm-hmm. and so he went on to have another career, um, particularly in the Austin area. Mr. Beasley, not sure what happened with the math teacher himself. Uh, Mr. Ginheimer was actually detained for a, a short amount of time by the local police over this, but released him, retracted in the paper. He was back in the good graces by the time the war was over. So he he held on. <laughs> but um, but that's, you know, the, the difference between something to actually be suspicious about versus just rumor mongering and whatnot. That was those distinctions were not always cut and dry. And we're going to see that a little bit in this the second piece that I want to highlight. OK, this takes place at the campus of Baylor University. So at the time, I'm going to set the stage a little bit. Uh, So Samuel Palmer Brooks was the president of the Baylor Baylor University at the time. There was only one dean. It was the dean of the whole college. Uh, His name was John Lewis Kessler, good German stock. President Brooks would oversee chapel services on campus whenever they held chapel. But he was out of town one day, and so Dean Kessler oversaw the chapel service this one day. And this was shortly after war was declared. And he made some comments during this chapel service that got him into some hot water with faculty, staff, and students alike. So we have, there's going to be two individuals that I'm going to play for you kind of as a combo clip. Uh, So you have a young man who was attending Baylor University at the time. His name is Duthit Young McDaniel. He was a district judge, actually, in Waco for a long time uh, later in life. And then we have Miss Nellie Lee Hill Cole who was a teacher in the Department of Expression at Baylor University Department at of Expression. Yes. So you're, <laughs> you're going to have the student and the faculty perspective and their remembrance of this event and what transpired afterwards. So we're going to listen to them. What was the substance of his speech? Well, in his speech, he made the statement, my country, right or wrong, if right, to keep it right, if wrong, to set it right. Well... We had a bunch of hotheads, and some of the teachers became fanatical about it. They were just mad, and they this, that, and the other, and they just, for a better word to use, Dr. Kressler was crucified. And I've always regretted it. I agreed with the statement. Dr. Kessler was a good man, and there was a lot of people that felt the same way I did, and there was a lot that were mad. So there was quite a debate on the campus. Well, well, it was not any great debate because we didn't debate anything. Dr. Brooks was the man that set the pattern, and the faculty did, and uh, he was uh, moved out. They had a faculty meeting, which I attended as an associate teacher, 
there was a great deal said, and I didn't say any of it. I, I just didn't take part, pro or con. Some of the faculty members were thinking that Dr. Kessler was pro-German, and they didn't think he should be kept in the school. Dr. Brooks took up for it all the time, and Dr. Brooks finally, towards the last, after everything, everybody else had had their say, he said, I hope you will remember that we have a good man on trial for his life, which it could well have been. I mean, you wouldn't realize how, how head up people can get in war. So just to make sure I'm hearing this right, he said one kind of statement that really could have been taken either way, and people took it one way right. and kind of railroaded him. Well, in a bit of a background, in the statement he made, my country right or wrong, if right to keep it right if wrong to set it right that's a quote yeah that's a quote okay and it's a quote from a famous individual in america's history which was the first german american to be a u.s senator basically from the state of missouri and the context of the original quote is based off a shortened version of that my country right or wrong used to be the quote it used to be, mm-hmm. I don't care what you say, my country right or wrong. Right. But when he said this on the floor of the Senate, it was, well, wait a minute here. And it's specifically at that time it was the Franco-Prussian War that we were giving aid to France. It's like, well, if we're going to do something like this, let's make sure we're doing it for the right reasons. And we should mm-hmm. always be conscious that we're, you know, everything we do is on the side of liberty and justice and whatnot. So he was just quoting Schurz at that time. A lot of people took it the wrong way. We have some other testimony of people in the room. People actually got up and left when he made that comment um, during the time and took a little investigating through some of the the archives, specifically the student papers and whatnot, to find out what actually happened uh, to uh, Dean Kessler. Shortly after this, it's announced that he's going to join the national efforts of the YMCA, which was very much involved in the war effort at that time. So he was taking a leave of absence for a year to join the national YMCA. Hmm. Uh, and the seniors were bidding him, you know, well, and you know, he's very virtuous and, and whatnot in doing this, but then he never comes back. He ends hmm. up after that term, he gets a position in Vanderbilt. It's not until a few years after that, that you have a separate little scandal going on at Baylor, which is, should we be teaching evolution at the university? Dr. Kessler was a biologist by trade, so that's what he taught at the university. And there is a fellow biologist there that made a comment to the paper and said, you know, Dean Kessler was a evolutionist of evolutionists, you know, and he would still be here today teaching this if it wasn't for the fact that he was perceived as pro-German and was forced out. Well, that's kind of the first public utterance in a publication that I could find of what actually happened, hmm. so to speak. So, you know, you, you see this all the time as far as people are pursuing other interests. So is the idea that by saying to make my country right is to make it like more German, is that what they were getting at? I think they were upset at the fact that somebody would say that the U.S. is doing something that could be considered wrong or would have to be set straight. Okay. Uh, so there is a certain number, and especially for a German to be saying this. Okay. So it's not only are you saying something bad about my country in a time of war, but you're a German saying this. So what are your motivations? Right. Okay. I get it. Uh, so that's the story of Dean Kessler. So we have other stories in our collection um, from some uh, rural German Americans, especially some of these small towns and some pretty incredible and disturbing things that happened to some, some rural German Americans 
um, some tar and feathering. Paint was used a lot, and people would paint yellow on someone's fence if they didn't feel like they were contributing to the war effort, or sometimes they would be splashed with yellow paint if they thought they weren't being patriotic or whatnot. So some of these things happened in the in the rural part of Central Texas, and we've got some of those stories in our collection as well. So that's, and that's all, uh, some of it's just, you know, going back to the Liberty Bonds, Liberty Bond pressure. A lot of German-Americans felt very pressured to purchase these Liberty Bonds every time they came out, put those things in their windows to make sure people understood that they were on their side. And I'm sure they've got to be conflicted as people if they come from that country, but now they're Americans and they don't maybe agree with the direction Germany's gone, but it's still, you know, their homeland. And like anybody, you'd feel kind of like this really, I just can't win in this situation. So there's a, there's some testimony from an individual who was uh, probably, I'd say 10 or 11 at the time. And his father, and they, they were part of the German Verein, the German club in Waco at this time. And he talks about in our collection the difference between the older generation and the newer generation and the fights they would have in the club sometimes about how they felt about the war. And so a lot of that was identity, new identity. And so the younger generation were were a little more American. They are a little more separated. They didn't grow up necessarily in the old country as mm-hmm. much. And they didn't feel as connected to the Kaiser and... And so, like, he, t- he says his father just felt like the Kaiser was being a land grabber. That's, way, that's the way he put it. <laughs> so that, that was going on within in the German club and the German community as well. So Waco's doubled its population. You've got all this uh, strife going on with, with the Germans. And you've got people from out of town marrying Waco, Waco women. And then all of a sudden, like, the war is just over, right? Because we mentioned it's very short. Right. And it's especially for us in the United States when we find out the war is over. Uh, so the famous line is, is on the 11th hour, the 11th day of the 11th month, 1918, is when the armistice was agreed upon. Well, that's the 11th hour back in Europe. You know, it's still the <laughs> middle of the night here in the United States. So I'll play one last clip for you. And this is Miss Sindone as well. So she's going to actually talk about what happened, how they got the news uh, that the war was over and what happened the next day. How did you get the news that the war was over? Um, four o'clock in the morning. We were all in bed and somebody stopped outside of our house in a car and they were beating on I don't know what they had, pots and pans and drum and tubs and whatever it was. And they were screaming and yelling my grandmother's name. And we knew that something had happened. And let's see, my grandmother lived right across the street. And uh, she came, uh, my dad went over and got her. And they all came. There's a bunch of Italians that came in a car and come to tell grandmother that the war was over. So that's how we got the news. Tell me some more about our Armistice Day and how it was celebrated. Oh, they turned out school. And the boys, the kids at school, got trucks. People who had trucks just converged on the square. And they filled them up with high school students and Baylor students and townspeople. They went all over town, wake all around into East Waco and South Waco. And they were all over town making noises. <laughs> and they were, they were blowing the whistles. All of the manufacturing companies here used to have whistles that would blow at noon for lunch. And all of those things started blowing all over town. The churches were ringing their bells. Oh, well, listen, it was pandemonium. And the two divisions out at the camp came out full force and marched all the way from Camp Makoff out to the Cotton Palace. And they had a big rally out there, and everybody, they, I think some of the restaurants opened up and were giving free food to all the soldiers that came in. It was it was just like a, you know, with that, there was an old movie, a comedian's movie, way back there called Hell's a Poppin'. 
and that's what it was like, you know. It was just all, it was, you, you couldn't even hear yourself talk. What did you do that day? Well, we were out of school. We had a big, all of the family came to our house, and everybody was bringing food, and we went to all of the parades. We went downtown and watched all these trucks that were, no way could really put on, a, put on a celebration. And when we went back to school, well, that morning, when, that next morning, we went to school to see what was going to happen. And one of the boys had gotten a great big American flag, and he was in the upper study hall, and he was waving that flag. Mr. Genheimer was back in favor again, and he made a big speech, and all of the kids that, that sang songs, and then he rang the bell, and he says, go home. <laughs> and they turned school out, and then that's when they all got in all these trucks. So it was quite a day. What a party. <laughs> you have a sense of just all the communities coming together, so the soldiers... You know, that was a big deal with their the way they would they would have their calisthenics. They would do marches through the town from time to time. They would go out to the Cotton Palace. The Cotton Palace was a big exhibition point. So all of those things that were basically going on during the war kind of converged for Ar Armistice Day. You know, the Baylor University students, the Waco High students, everybody was out um, celebrating this moment. And as I said at the beginning, I'm sure for a lot of people that was it was pretty amazing to, to get that news that here it is, you know, we've been in this a little more than a year and it's over mm -hmm. already and our boys are coming home. So, so Steve, we haven't talked much about Europe. Mm -hmm. We've talked about kind of how World War One impacts Waco. So as you think of some legacies of that or maybe as we move into the 20s and 30s, kind of the, the long experience or the long effects of the experience of the impact of World War One on Waco, what things come to mind? Right. Well, one of the things that comes to mind is Miss Sindone, her uncle served in the war, but uh, he was exposed to mustard gas. And so this is something, uh, remember the lost, you know, is a common refrain uh, after the soldiers come back home. And this, again, the size of this conflict and then the things that these soldiers were subjected to at the time, the uh, shell shock, you know, that's, you know, the kind of the first brand PTSD, well, they didn't call it then, but, mm -hmm. you know, the, the, the fact that this is a, something that we have to deal with. And then her, her uncle ended up dying a couple years later, complications due to the mustard gas. From the European theater side, you have the League of Nations that comes out of World War One. You basically have, again, taking these empires, German Empire, Hungarian, Ottoman, separating them from their empires and giving the you know sections of their empires to the victors or in some cases independence economic sanctions afterwards as well so all these things that this those that study world war ii and the rise of hitler in germany in particular and whatnot you can begin to see almost immediately in europe that these actions that are being taken to try and wrap your head around exactly what happened here in Europe, all these entangling alliances and whatnot, and how can we break this apart and make sure this never happens again, and how we didn't really realize, let that percolate a couple decades and see what the result is. And then uh, for the United States, uh, what that, that means for the United States. So I've seen a line that uh, in World War One, you know, Waco truly became a city, and then the United States truly became a national power. And then, unfortunately, then we would have to go through the same experience a couple decades later to mm -hmm. reinforce that, but the, the amount of national pride, but at, at, at a certain cost of, you know, for the isolationists, it was, well, we've taken this step now. Mm -hmm. we're, we're this nation now. 
And so what is this going to look like moving forward? You have an explosion. So the, the 50s after World War II, you had the 20s, the roaring 20s until the stock market crashes. And then we're brought back to earth a little bit in the 30s. Not a little bit, a lot. <laughs> um, so, so it's really interesting to see history repeat itself. Mm-hmm. It's been, I think, great to have these centennial events for World War One, not just about the war itself, but to see how, at least for the 20th century, this this was this was the primary event, and that it would repeat itself in many ways in the middle of the century. But most people only know that middle of the century and don't know that story and don't realize mm-hmm. all all the, the predicates that came as a result of this this first great war, the first worldwide conflict. I do feel like World War II overshadows World War One in a lot of aspects, at least for someone like me who's not in the history profession, that you always hear a lot about that and not as much about World War One. So it's really cool to see how Waco was really impacted by that. And I will say I think it's really a treasure to have these testimonies in our collection because when most people think about veterans giving testimony, they think about the World War II, the greatest generation mm-hmm. and those projects. And so these these stories where you actually hear people in their own words talk about their experiences during World War One, whether they're a soldier or life on the home front or whatnot, I think are really important. And it's great that we have that oral history as a profession existed at that time and that we have these opportunities to have these materials in our collections. And so that when we have events that have taken place these past couple of years, we can contribute and people can come to mm-hmm. come to experience and connect uh, maybe a little more personal level of actually hearing them tell their story. So you've talked about celebrations and stuff that are going on. How can somebody learn more, get involved? Sure. So there have been any number of special events and exhibits that have been planned. Most of them have kind of run their course by now. But of course, we're coming up on the 11th month and the 11th day mm-hmm. in 1918 and now it's going to be 2018 so that's going to be the big big uh, anniversary date so to speak is as on November the 11th and so there there are a number of ways there there's actually a, a commission that that was formed several years ago to help uh, they, they gave grants to small museums or whatnot and so they're going to basically see it through all the way through the armistice um, anniversary there. We've got, as I said, we've got any number of additional testimonies on our website. So I'll just give that that link real quick. So it's www.baylor.edu backslash oral history backslash great war. And that will take you to the individual page I created for a lot of these testimonies. So you can read more, hear more. One in particular I want to highlight because we did primarily talk about the home front. We do have a testimony of a gentleman whose name is Wilford Naaman. He's actually one of the founders of the Naaman, Howell, Smith & Chase law firm here in Waco. Okay. He talks for an hour and a half about his experience serving in World War I. Everything from him joining the National Guard, trying to get commissioned as a second lieutenant for an artillery battery, eventually being moved up to Camp Bowie, in Fort Worth, training with horses, dragging artillery pieces. Wow! Then getting shipped overseas as an, and then takes up as an artillery um, observer, works with artillery observers in France, and her, his pretty close experience 
on the front lines with the, his fellow observers on the German side mm. across no man's land, and then just the entire experience there for him. And he was one of those that basically got to the front lines, and by the time his unit was about to get there, the war was over. But really interesting testimonies, an hour and a half worth of testimonies that you can explore to get a little bit more of this, the, the soldier's story, uh, so to speak. Um, I think that, you should get his own podcast, too. Yeah, well, hey. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I know how I'm going to celebrate Armistice Day. I'm going to go around at four in the morning with some pots and start banging them in the neighborhood and see what people think. (laughs) So where do you live? (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, thank you so much for coming in today. It's been really interesting to learn more about World War One. And considering I know your coworker, I'm sure you'll be back for more in the future. Well, we're we're very happy. And this, you know, this has kind of been a pet project of mine. But one of the the great things is to be able to resurrect these stories. As I said, Mm -hmm. we digitize this audio now that we have the ability to and we can retell these stories uh, now. 10, 20 40, maybe even 50 years later. So it's been a really jo- uh, really a joy to work on this project, and I'd be more than happy to come back with other jewels from our collection. All right. Thank you, Stephen. Cross the Brazos and Waco Ride hard and I'll make it by dawn Cross the Brazos and Waco Thanks for listening to the Waco History Podcast. Like what you heard? Subscribe, rate, and review our show on iTunes so we can reach more listeners. You can find show notes and info on every episode at wacohistorypodcast.com and more info on Waco's past at wacohistory.org. Our theme music, used with permission, is Cross the Brazos at Waco, performed by the late Billy Walker. For more info on Billy's music, go to billywalker.com. We'll see you next time. I'm a as he dropped the guns that she hated. In the muddy Brazos below Cross the Brazos at Waco Ride hard and I'll make it by dawn Cross the Brazos at Waco I'll walk straight in old San Antonio Then the night came alive with gunfire He knew that at last it'd been found As the ranger's badge showed brightly El Bandito lay on the ground Carmela knew he was dying That all of her dreams were in vain As she kissed his lips for the last time She heard him whisper again Cross the Brazos and Waco Ride hard and I'll make it by dawn Cross the Brazos and Waco I'm safe when I reach San Antonio I'm safe when I reach San Antonio